This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm your host, Josh Malden, and I'm here today with Kyle Dugdale, who is a CTI member from our program on religion and the built environment. Dugdale is an architect and historian. He's taught history, theory, and design at Yale School of Architecture and at Columbia Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. He holds a BA from Corpus Christi College, Oxford, and a Master's of Architecture from Harvard's Graduate School of Design and a PhD from Yale University. His work has appeared in journals including Perspecta, the Journal of Architectural Education and Utopian Studies. His first book, Babel's Present, was published in 2016, and he maintains an interest in architecture's claims to metaphysical significance with a particular curiosity for architecture as a recurring figure in biblical narratives. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Thank you, Josh. Pleased to be here. Well, I gave a kind of background uh, of, of the work you've done, but maybe as a way to get started, I was curious if you're sort of in a taxi cab and a taxi driver asks what kind of work you do, how do you answer that? Well, the short answer is that I'm an architect. The slightly longer answer is that I'm an architectural historian. Uh, and then depending on the response, I take it from there. I have experience in practice, but also in, in teaching. And I, I, more recently, I have been going heavy on the teaching side of things. Say a bit more about your background and how you got interested in architecture to begin with. I was a fairly classic kid interested in putting things together and especially in taking things apart. And uh, I loved drawing. And, uh, but I actually enjoyed a lot of things. Um, and if I go back far enough, I think my family wisely discouraged me from specializing too soon. Um, so I came to architecture in a way rather late. My undergraduate was, was in classics. Um, I came to architecture rather late with a host of other interests and, and, and quite big interests, I suppose. And in retrospect, I, I guess those have informed my work. Like I try to place architecture within a much larger context uh, that has everything to do with, with who we are as human beings. It's a sort of humanistic approach, I suppose. And how do you examine this intersection of religion, theology, and architecture? And, and is that a common sort of uh, area to be studying in combination in, in architecture, or is that an unusual kind of approach? I'm not sure it's, it is common, no. Obviously, there is a large chunk of architectural history that is tied to various typologies of churches and temples and so forth. But my experience is that the contemporary world of architectural education, so the School of Architecture today, uh, wherever it might be, tends to assume that the uh, world that we live in and the practice of architecture today is uh, something that is uh, has shifted in a fairly fundamental way, uh, away from questions that have much to do with theology, say, toward in, entirely different questions that have to do with uh, technology and uh, culture, society, uh, the challenges of the 21st century, uh, most recently global warming, uh, climate, sustainability, and so forth, right? Uh, all, all of which seem to be questions that are not necessarily, at least in, in the mind of most, most uh, in, in my experience, theological in character. Say a bit about, uh, I want to get to your article that you published called Light of Promise in the Image Journal here in a moment, which was built on your CTI uh, research. 
But even before we get to that, maybe say a bit about your your book from 2016, Babel's Present. So I have been interested for some time in the figure of the Tower of Babel, which is a curious, curious figure for all kinds of reasons. For one, it is famous for being absent. And because it is so, because it is so absent, and yet very present in the imagination of uh, generations, centuries of architects uh, who, for whom the biblical text has held authority. Because of that, each generation, if you look back through the pages of architectural history, each generation has tried to reimagine, to rebuild in the mind's eye, as it were, uh, the Tower of Babel such that you can actually trace the history of the building not as a physical structure, but as a structure that lives in the imaginations of subsequent generations of architects. Uh, and of course, each generation's reconstruction, as it were, tells you more about the anxieties and so forth at the moment that, that reimagines it than it does typically uh, about uh, the architecture of antiquity, say. I was particularly curious because I would have thought originally that as we move into the 20th century, into, into the architecture of, of modernity, modernism, and so forth, um, I would have thought that the architecture of the Tower of Babel, along with other biblical uh, figures, would begin to fade from the, from the pages of architectural history and theory, uh, and that you would come across fewer and fewer references to Babel. But the curious thing I found was that actually exactly the opposite happens. In several different places in the early 20th century, the Tower of Babel seems to return with a vengeance. Um, and in fact, it does so at precisely those moments that are those places and times that are most conscious of their own modernity, if you like. Um, so so part, of, part of my work over the last few years has been trying to understand why that is the case and, and what we can draw out of it. Do you, uh, can you give some examples? Thing. Yeah. Um, I think it, 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 one obvious one is New York City in the 1920s, right? It's just a moment when the city is growing uh, upward yeah. at unprecedented pace. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, and it's growing upward in, in very visibly, right? So that's such that for the first time in the history of the city, the towers of the new city are beginning to crowd out the towers of the old city. So for example, the thing that was visible before any other things as you approached uh, the North American continent, the port of New York City by steamship, in the early part of the 20th century, the thing that was visible first over the horizon was the spire of uh, Trinity Church, which was the, for a long time the tallest uh, object in the city. Um, in the early 20th century, little by little, that became less and less true to the point where at a certain point you could no longer even see the spire of Trinity Church, right? Um, and it had been crowded out, if you like, by the towers of of mammon rather than God, right? The towers of the corporate uh, culture of, of contemporary New York City, but the Singer Manufacturing uh, Company, various life insurance companies and so forth. And the, the good citizens of New York City worried about this, right? Because they set their city against other cities that they were familiar with, both from the earlier chapters of their own history and for 
uh, and by comparison with cities of Europe, for example, and they worried about what it meant when the most, when the tallest point in their city was no longer the spire of a structure dedicated to the worship of God, say, but rather something that was very much uh, dedicated to a different set of priorities, right? And and, and the tower, the, the figure of the Tower of Babel came comes into that conversation regularly, right? As a sort of marker of doubt and, and questioning of who we are as a culture and what we believe in and, and what kind of world we are building, what kind of cities we are constructing and so forth. So there were debates going on among public figures, among architectures, and actually invoking the Tower of Babel and saying we're uh, we're guilty of the kind of hubris that you see in that story. Yes, that was one side of it, and then of course on the other side there are the architects who are drawing uh, drawing buildings, right? And they also are interested uh, in the Tower of Babel for slightly different reasons. And at this moment, um, New York City is also drawing up new. Uh, zoning laws precisely in order to deal with the problems of light and air um, and so forth. Uh, and the zoning laws generate forms that, that look curiously like some of the um, archaeological representations uh, uh, of, of imaginary Babylonian structures, right? So there's, this, there's, there's, there's a lot going on there. Uh, and the two sides of the, or the many sides of the conversation, as it were, uh, seem to be speaking to one another. And of course, this is also a period of, of, uh, of unprecedented immigration and uh, many, many different languages suddenly begin milling around uh, within uh, the city of uh, New York. Um, and there are in every, uh, in, you know, and, and there are as many architectural vocabularies that seem to be um, uh, imposing themselves upon the urban fabric and, and and so there too right the figure of Babel seems to be um, to be relevant but is it a is it a warning or is it actually a, a sign of of um, of a, a new richness right um, and so, so so Babel becomes a a figure around which thoughts collect I suppose this article I also wanted to talk about uh, the light of promise in image journal which is available online and we'll link it in the show notes so anyone can read it it's publicly accessible you're you're looking at in the second half of the paper at the apple store in new york and how it you see it itself as a kind of religious temple so maybe talk about the article as a whole and specifically about how you read apple so this is coming out of a larger ongoing project, I suppose, uh, which I, uh, for the moment, am calling the city and its gods. And the premise of it comes out of my teaching, I suppose, uh, in which, of course, you know, I, I teach at Yale. Um, one of the things I teach is the undergraduate um, survey class, essentially, in architectural history. Um, and I teach the city of antiquity, for example, Athens, right? And, and there is no question that when we look at the city of ancient Athens, but other cities could substitute here also, uh, there is no question that to understand the city and its identity and its architecture, you also have to understand its gods, uh, such that the goddess Athena, for example, is both uh, tied to the name of the city of Athens and her statue up on the Acropolis looks out over the city 
and her temple is the thing that defines the highest point uh, of the city, uh, and she is the patron goddess of the city, and so on and so forth, right? Um, you can't study, you can't understand the city of antiquity without, without also understanding its gods. Now, my experience has been that when we turn to the city of modernity, if you like, to the contemporary city, there is an assumption that all of that has gone away, that the modern city is a secular place, uh, that there are no gods, patron gods as such, uh, the um, defining structures of the contemporary city are not typically, uh, at least in, the, uh, in, in North America, not typically uh, religious structures anymore. Uh, that is not where architects uh, are devoting most of their energies and so forth. Um, my contention, and this is what I'm trying to work out uh, in this essay and in some others, is that to think of the distinction between the ancient and the modern city in that way is actually a mistake. Um, that it is not the case that the contemporary city is godless, as it were, uh, but rather that we have substituted new gods for the old gods. Um, and that we have shifted our devotions, as it were, uh, to other authorities, uh, which nonetheless has, have every bit as much of an influence on the shape of our lives and the shape of the spaces within which we move and have our being and so forth um, as the old gods did. Uh, and so part of my project involves trying to tie new architectures back to old architectures um, and to examine in the ways in which some uh, in which they operate and some of the similarities. So in this instance, for example, I was uh, looking at some of the magnificent interiors of Byzantine churches with their arrays of icons and the, specifically the, the, very, the very specific light that collects around the gold surfaces uh, of the icons and so forth. Um, I was looking particularly at, a, at one interior um, in the very far north of, of uh, Russia on Kizi Island. And against that figure of the Byzantine interior, um, I tried for, for just a moment to set the, the architecture of the interior of the Apple store. Uh, the premise being that actually to understand the Apple store, we have to understand the longer tradition of architecture that seeks to elevate uh, an experience that, that, uh, that brings all of its powers to bear uh, onto the, um, the act of devotion, the act of, um, of worship in a sense, right? And, and so I tried to tease that out a little bit and, and, um, and see where it takes us. I think it helps us to understand our current context better than we otherwise would. When you're in the Apple store, are you, uh, do you appreciate the beauty of the architecture or are you, are, are you more troubled by, by it? Some of both, I suppose, right? And there's no question that, that uh, it is, uh, these are, um, the, the Apple store interiors are among the most uh, precisely designed spaces of the contemporary city. Uh, they are the focus of, of 
uh, a level of precision that is rarely brought to bear on other kinds of architectures uh, and of course vast uh, budgets and, and, and so forth, right? Um, in particular, I was looking at the New York City flagship store by, by Foster and Partners, which is beautifully done, very precise, uh, almost obsessive in its attention to detail. Uh, in particular, the lighting uh, receives an unprecedented level of control and attention and so forth. Uh, all of that is hard not to appreciate. And the longer you look at it, the more you, um, you can begin to appreciate what's actually happening there. Um, at the same time, uh, if you then ask the question of what this is in service to, it begins, I think, to be a little bit, maybe we can say disappointing. In other words, if these are the spaces to which as a culture we devote our highest loves, as it were, um, are we satisfied with that? This ties, of course, to bigger questions about our relationship as human beings to technology and to consumerism and, and so on and so forth, right? Um, and my sense is, is that at the end of the day, we are probably right to come away from the experience of the Apple Store interior, say, with more questions than we walked in with. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think they are questions that demand answers. Um, and I suspect that they are questions that demand answers to which Apple Inc. Uh, will not necessarily supply, uh, supply the answers. You were saying this is part of a larger project on the city and its gods. Can you speak a bit about where you're going next in terms of this broader, broader project, other, other chapters in the book, if it becomes a book or articles sure. that might come out of it? Um, so I have another uh, essay, which I also began to work with uh, at CTI, um, that takes a look now, it steps out of the interiors into the public space of the streets of New York City. Uh, and this, uh, this work I'm organizing around a particular image, it's a, it's a stock photograph, it's one of those images that you download from the internet, uh, complete with all the tags that come with it, right, it's a particular kind of image, image that circulates in our digital world um, very freely. Um, and it is in fact an image of a New York City taxi driver, a Muslim taxi driver uh, who has stopped his taxi and pulled over on uh, the side of the road in the West Village of, of New York City, Manhattan, uh, and has laid out his prayer mat and has turned it toward Mecca and is using the space of the street as a space of prayer. Um, and my, what I'm doing there is trying to unpack that image and to understand what's going on and what the various ruling authorities are um, over that space and the larger spaces to which it is oriented, uh, which again turn out not to be only physical but also metaphysical on some level, um, but are not unrelated to those same uh, authorities that, that we were talking about just now, uh, which is the digital authorities of, uh, of the Apple Store and so forth, right? Um, um, that is a project in, in, in progress right now, and I'm, I will say I'm rather enjoying it, um, and I'm hoping to 
to publish that fairly soon. There, there is more where that came from, right? And, and uh, I guess part of my goal is to um, extract uh, case studies from the contemporary spaces of our modern urban lives and so forth, uh, and to begin to look at them in the light of a much longer trajectory um, of spaces that also include spaces of devotion and spaces of worship. Um, uh, and and there is the, yeah there, there there are there are other such spaces. Uh, another interest, for example, are the medical spaces of of contemporary uh, of the contemporary hospital. Um, mm -hmm. Some of which again are very highly designed, but with very specific goals, of course, right? Um, uh, but but a deliberate um, and designed toward a certain end, right? And that, that that's that that piece is still in in the early stages. Well, I look forward to reading. I've read, of course, a draft of that, but I look forward to, to reading the published version. And I should say, not only are the ideas uh, that you're working with very interesting and, and enlightening, but uh, also your writing is very beautiful and clear and uh, something to be commended. So I'll definitely post those uh, post your, your writings along with this this podcast. But thanks a lot, Kyle, for being on the podcast and, and for being part of uh, our workshop at CTI. Thank you, Josh, very much.